Well, I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4 is where we are this morning. As we head into our summer months, we're going to push pause on our sermon series through John, which is a difficult thing for me to do because I've been loving it so much. The Gospel of John has been so rich and has taught us so much. So we're going to push pause on that. And we are going to start a sermon series, June, July, and August. We're going to go through the parables of Jesus. But this morning, it's always a good time between transitions of sermon series to have a standalone message. It's a good time for that. Standalone messages are very hard. I'm not a big fan of preaching them because they're, they're just divorced from any context. It just kind of is a point in time here and now, we're done. It's a much harder thing to communicate. But I, I pray that this will be fit into a proper context of the summer. As this, this summer, we have a goal at our church. It's really the goal for our church every day of the year. But this summer specifically, we want to be intentional about relationships and disciple making. We want to be intentional. That's why we're not a church about programs. We hate programs at this church. We're a church about people. We love people. And programs are only good in so much that they enable us to grow in our relationships with people. If they don't, it's not worth doing that program. And the greatest relationship that Jesus died for and desires for his bride is the relationship of discipleship. That's the greatest relationship that Jesus desires for those in his church and for those outside. The Great Commission, you know it. The Great Commission, Matthew 28. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. Make disciples of all the nations. Remember how Jesus starts that, right? All authority has been given to me. So we really can't question him or say, I don't really think that that's a good idea because if he has all authority, then we have to do what he tells us to do. Either we are doing what he tells us to do or we're disobeying. But we've been called to make disciples, to go, to baptize, and to teach. And then you remember how he ends the Great Commission. Go, right? I have all authority. Go, make disciples, baptize, teach. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. I'm always with you. So he has all authority. That's bookend number one. So whatever he tells us to do, we we have to do it. And he'll be with us every step of the way. I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. You will close your eyes in this life with Jesus holding you, and you will open your eyes in the next with Jesus holding you. He's with us always. The Great Commission is clear. We are called to make disciples. As a church, we're called to make disciples individually. When Jesus says make disciples, I think too often we we think that that is just evangelism and conversion. I share the gospel, somebody gets saved, I have made a disciple, I'm done. Jesus doesn't allow for that. He doesn't only flesh out make disciples with baptize them. He fleshes it out with teach them to observe all that I've commanded you. So baptize them is that moment of conversion. Discipleship involves a moment in time, an event in time. And it's a glorious event, right? It's an event that all the angels in heaven are rejoicing over when one sinner comes to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. But that event is not making disciples. That event is the start And then there's a process, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Teaching, teaching. It's a time-consuming, extended process. So disciple-making involves intentionally, relationally investing yourself in the spiritual growth and maturity of others around you. 
We know that. We know that. We intuitively know that. We biblically know that. We know that's what we've been called to do. And in some ways, we do it. But sometimes we make excuses for not doing it. Sometimes everything else in life seems to be going the other direction than life on life discipleship. We are a busy people. And so as we enter our summer months, one of the things that I wanted to do as we transition from the Gospel of John sermon series to our sermon series on parables, is I just wanted to reorient our thinking, recalibrate our hearts. What are we all about here at CBC? What is the goal of being here in Northridge as a church plant? And let's, let's practice that. Let's focus on that this summer as we have taken all of the programs away and we're just going to be meeting on Sundays and on Thursdays for discipleship. We want to free us up to be able to do what the Bible tells us to do. So very simply this morning, we're going to ask the scriptures two questions. First question is, why do we need to be discipled? Or why do we need to be discipling? And the second question is, how do we disciple? First question, why do we need to be discipled? And why do we need to be discipling? And the second question is, how do we disciple? We're going to start in Ephesians chapter 4. We'll find our way to 2 Timothy chapter 2. and Let's ask uh, God's blessing on our time after we read these verses because we need his help in order for us to see what he desires to see this morning. So let's start in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. We'll read verses 1 through 16. Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called, with all humility, with all gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Now, this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. And he gave some as apostles, some as prophets. Some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body. For the building up of itself in love. Father, I pray that you would encourage our hearts this morning. I know that 
Our people are a people that are all about relationships and making disciples. So here's a very real aspect where this is preaching to the choir on many levels. But all of us could do better. God, all of us need encouragement and reminders. And God, specifically this morning, there are so many here that are growing weary or struggling with, is there any fruit because of my faithfulness? And God, I pray this morning that you would encourage them that the cost of discipleship is worth it. That they're not wasting their life by pouring themselves into others. God, I think of the Gospel of John and how Jesus in the upper room is speaking to those that he had trained and personally discipled for three and a half years, living with them, teaching them. And one betrays and falls away. One denies and the, all, and the others just flee. They still don't get it. And yet, our Lord was not discouraged. He said, I'm going to send the Spirit and the Spirit's going to finish this work. So God, I pray that your Spirit would do that work in our hearts this day. Give us encouragement through the Scriptures. Humble us, break us. Mend our hearts and bring us to a place of great encouragement because of the gospel and because of our Savior. We pray in his precious name. Amen. So, first question, why do we need to be discipled? Why do we need to be discipling? Why do we need to be involved in these intentional relationships where spiritual things are brought up, where growth happens? Why do we need to be doing that? We're going to start in Ephesians chapter 4. We'll start in verse 7. Verse 7 says that grace was given. To each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. So before we get to answer the why question, I want to give us an encouragement that it can be done. And this is the way that Jesus makes sure that this will happen, that discipleship and that growth will happen. Grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. So Jesus decides what gifts you get. They're not dependent on you. It's by grace. Praise the Lord. Now, if you are a really good Christian, you'll get a really good gift. No. If you're a Christian, you will get a gift that God himself has personally chosen to give to you. Each believer, every believer has a gift. They've been gifted by God to do something that can build up the body. You could write down Romans chapter 12, verse 6. Paul says in Romans 12, verse 6, We have gifts that differ according to the grace that has been given to us. And his point there is, and we should exercise those gifts. So we have gifts that have been given to us. So Romans 12, different words, same idea, different gifts that have been given, same grace that gives them. So Paul says in verse 7, you've been given a gift to be able to equip, to be able to train, to be able to encourage, to be able to grow others into spiritual maturity. Every believer has this. Verses 8 to 10, we're not going to spend time on them. Just suffice it to say, those are, I believe, a description of Jesus rising from the dead, conquering sin, conquering death, and kind of as a general who has conquered his enemy, though it looked like he had been conquered at the cross, he did the conquering at the cross, rose from the dead, conquered sin and death once and for all, and as he takes the captives, uh, the the enemy and everything that he um, won in defeating the enemy, he takes those spoils and he divides those spoils with his troops. I think that's the picture that's happening in verses 8 through 10. The general, Jesus Christ, is taking all of the spoils of his enemy and dividing them. He's giving gifts to his troops. Then in verse 11, there's a shift. 
Verse 7 tells us that grace was given according to the measure of Christ and the gifts that he gave to every single believer. Verse 11 says that he gives people and he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors, some as teachers. So verse 11 and 12, there's a shift. Verse 7, people are given gifts in the entire body, the whole body of Christ. Every single believer has a gift. In verses 11 through 12, people are given as the gift. So seven people are given gifts. 11 and 12, people are given as the gift to the church. So if you're a believer here this morning, you are graced by Jesus with gifts that are meant to be used in the body for the purpose of edification, for the purpose of growing the body. Some in the body are given gifts to equip the whole body as a, as a whole. But everybody has gifts. Why? Let's, let's go to the why question. Why do we need to be exercising those gifts? Why do we have those gifts? Why have we been given those gifts? Why do we need to be discipling? The answer to that question is in verse 12. For the equipping of the saints for the work of service. Equipping. That little word, equipping. In the Bible, to equip means two things. Number one, to equip something is to fix what is broken. To equip something is to fix what is broken. You could go to Mark chapter 1, verse 19, where the disciples are equipping their nets. It's the exact same Greek word that's used here. They're mending their nets. They're fixing what is broken. And the exact same word is used, equipping. They're, they're fixing something that's broken. The second emphasis that is used with this word equip is to supply what is lacking. This is used in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10, where Paul says, we are completing what is lacking in your faith. Completing, that word is the same Greek word, to equip. So equipping has two parts, fixing what is broken, supplying what is lacking. So why do we need to be discipling? Why do we be, need to be ministering to one another? Why have we been given gifts in order to do that? The answer very clearly here is because we are all broken and we are all lacking. I know that that's not the nicest thing to hear, but that's the truth. All of us, we are all way more broken than we think we are, and we are all way more lacking than we think we are. And that's why others have gifts that will help build you up where you are lacking, where you are broken. There's a tension here that I've been asked before by several people. If I've been given a gift personally by Jesus Christ himself, then I don't need anybody to nurture me, right? I don't need to be involved in church. I don't need to be involved in discipleship. I have a gift from Jesus himself. I can work that gift through my own abilities to mature myself, and I don't really need the church. I don't need other people. Jesus himself is my teacher. After all, he's the one that personally gave me the gift. But you can see clearly in this text, in Ephesians 4, it doesn't allow for that. This text says, verse 12, we are given gifts for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body. We're given gifts to help others, to encourage others. So if we just remain on an island and stay by ourselves, we can't live out this equipping of one another and encouraging one another and building each other up. That's what membership is, by the way. That's why the Bible stresses this idea of becoming members of one another. Church membership, there are so many people that have a, a great misconception. It has been um, used wrongly and incorrectly and unbiblically in the past. So I understand where wrong thinking about church membership comes, comes from. But church membership, just very basically, it, it, you're saying, I am committed to growing in this church. 
Therefore, I'm committed to opening up my heart, opening up my life. I am lacking, I am broken, and I want people to help me grow. And I'm committed to helping others grow because others around me are lacking, they're broken, they need help, and I'm committed to helping them. That's membership. It's a covenant with one another to say, I'm here, I'm a part of this body. I want to use the gifts that God has given to me to help further maturity in the body. If, if you're here this morning and you are a regular attender, praise the Lord you're here. I am so thankful that you're here. And perhaps you're a regular attender that's already in your mind doing what a member does. And you, you totally could be involved in small groups, involved in relationships, involved in disciple making. Can I just encourage you to take that next step and say, you know what, I, I want to up front proclaim I am a believer in Jesus Christ. I'm committed to this local body to grow because they're pouring into me and to help others grow because I'm pouring into them. Um, I'd encourage you to do that because the reality is we all need each other. That's what the church is designed by God for. Here in these verses, we have three levels of brokenness. We have three levels. Number one, Jesus comes to individuals who have no grace and no gifts and he gives them grace and gifts. So broken, lacking, he gives grace and he gives gifts. Number two, then he looks at the church and he sees brokenness in the church. He sees lack in the church. So he gives people to the church to help fill up what's broken and lacking in the church. Then, once the people that have the gifts are equipped by the people given as the gifts, they are given uh, equipping to do the work of the ministry where they once were lacking in the ability to do that work. Three levels, layer upon layer of brokenness, of lack of need. If we are going to do anything as a church that would bring God glory, we have to take the first step in humility to say, I'm broken and I need help. How many times have you shared the gospel with somebody? Or even you've talked to somebody who proclaims faith in Jesus Christ, and they say, yeah, I'm not going to be a part of church because I have to clean up my act and then I'll go to church. I I need to make some things right with me and God and then I'll go to church. I hear that all the time. And my encouragement is, oh, the church is where the acts are cleaned up. The church is where the ministry happens. You don't need to clean up yourself. You can't clean up yourself outside of church. You come broken and Jesus heals you. You come lacking and Jesus fills you. That's what the point of the church is all about. The church is a hospital. The church is the emergency room where we come saying, I am bleeding to death and I need Jesus to help. And he is the one who loves to do that. He loves to do that. So don't despair of the church. Don't be discouraged when you see brokenness. Be encouraged, because that's the whole point of us being a church together. Let's be humble with one another as we minister to each other. Every member is a minister. Every member is a minister. Every believer has gifts that they are called by God to use with others to help grow them into maturity. Why minister at all? Why disciple? Well, answer number one, why do we need to be discipled? Why do we need to be discipling? Answer number one is because we are all broken and we are all lacking. I need people speaking into my life, encouraging me in the areas where I am weak and I am broken and I am lacking. The second answer is so that we would all be built up into unified maturity. So that we would all be built up into unified maturity. Verse 12, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man. We all attain. This is the corporate dimension. Discipleship happens one-on-one and one in groups, but then it's for the purpose of growing and unifying all of us together. 
Notice it says to a mature man, not to a mature men or mature people. We're supposed to be unified together in one body. I think the mature man in verse 13 is the likeness of Christ. We want to look like Christ. So the question is, where do we not look like Christ? We're broken, we're lacking. We need people to speak in our lives where we don't look like Jesus. I think the Bible would clearly say we tend to not know where we don't look like Jesus, right? Log in our eye, speck in the other person's eye. This is why we need to be open and honest with our lives. Just, do you see anything in me that needs to change? I want to look like Jesus. What in my life doesn't? We should give people an open-ended, just carte blanche to say anything that they need to say into our lives with grace and with humility. But anything that they see that's not Christ-like, come speak. And then we should help them. We should start by asking them yes or no questions to kind of get their thinking going. Am I, do I come across as humble? Do I wash people's feet with my words and my actions? Do I love them with the love of Jesus? Do I speak like Jesus? Am I approachable the way that Jesus was approachable? Am I judgmental the way that Jesus was not? And I want to be gracious. Like ask yes or no questions. But we should always come to people saying, I'm broken, I'm lacking, I need help. That's the why. The why is found in that word equipping and the word building. We disciple because we're all broken and lacking and we need each other to grow. And then the building up into a unified maturity together in one man. The next question is how do we do that? How do we disciple? This is question number two. How do we disciple then? How, if this is the goal of the church to make disciples, Matthew 28, and to equip everybody who's around us. We've been given gifts to do this. How do we do that? How do we disciple? I think that many, many people would answer going to church and listening to a sermon. That is discipleship. Amen and amen. I've given my life to preaching the Word of God on Sunday mornings. Amen and amen. Sermons are disciple-making tools. But if all that happens is me preaching the Word of God, or the Word of God being preached at CBC by anybody who would stand in this pulpit, and that's it, and we walk away, how would we be able to live out what is spoken of in Ephesians 4, verse 12? If I preach the Word where would you then be able to do the work of the ministry and to build up the body of Christ around you? You've been given gifts to use, and you have to use those, and sometimes they can be used on a Sunday morning, but most often they can't be used on a Sunday morning. So verse 15 is the answer to how. How do we do this? If we've been given gifts, how are we supposed to do it? If it's not just a Sunday morning sermon, which I believe that the Bible clearly says it's not, that's not even really the main form of discipleship, then how are we supposed to do this? It's verse 15. Speaking the truth in love with one another. We are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. So how do we disciple? We speak the truth in love. I don't know about you. I used to read that passage, speak the truth in love. The the Patrick Carmichael translation was say hard things in gentleness. I think that that's a biblical thing. I think that the Bible says if you have hard things to say, you should try and say them as gently as possible. Like I had to say to a couple of students, you have an F currently in my class, and if you don't do some work, it will stay there. Um, 
That's a hard thing to say. Don't enjoy saying that. But there's a way to say that with grace, with gentleness and encouragement. I don't think that's what this verse is saying. And I think I can prove to you that that's not what this verse is saying because verse 14 says, if we are grown in maturity, we're not going to be children tossed by every wind of doctrine. So this is about doctrine. This is about our thinking. This is about the way that we think and the way that our thinking changes the way that we live. This is biblical truth. So how do we disciple? Here's how. We need to know the truth. We need to know what Jesus looks like because the whole point is to grow up in the maturity of Christ. So know what Jesus looks like, how Jesus would act what he would say based on what he did say in the scriptures. Preach that truth to yourself. Be changed by it yourself. And then live it out with others and encourage others to do the same. Take that truth to others. That is discipleship. We are truth agents. Notice we are not the truth police. Oh, you did something wrong. Slap on the wrist. Get it right. That's not what we are called to do. We are called to be involved in each other's life in such a way that we're giving grace to one another by encouraging them in Christ's likeness, like we talked about in Family Bible Hour. I see Jesus in what you just did. I see the attitude of Christ in the way you reacted and responded. And we should be open for any form of critique if we don't look like Jesus. Just write down Hebrews 5.12. We don't have time to go there, but Hebrews 5.12. You know the passage. At this point, many of you should be teachers. That's what the author of Hebrews says. You all are believers, and there's a certain aspect where believers, if they understand the word of God, they can teach it. Everyone should be a teacher. There's a real sense in which all believers should be teachers, whether in a one-on-one or in groups or here up front. The way that we minister is by filling our head with knowledge, living it out ourselves, and then discussing it with others. We have to be careful, though. Can I just plead with us? I I pray that we are a well-taught church. I pray that our church knows the Bible. But with the knowledge of the Bible comes a huge danger. And Paul tells us about that danger. You know, in 1 Corinthians 8, verse 1, knowledge alone by itself does what? It puffs up. Knowledge alone by itself simply puffs up. What does Paul say builds up? He says knowledge by itself will puff up. So is the answer, Paul, don't gain knowledge? Nope. He's going to go on to say, build your knowledge. But what does he say? Knowledge puffs up by itself. Love builds up. Love builds up. The foundation of a discipleship relationship is love for the other person. This is the great commandment. Love God, love people. So we don't want to be a prideful congregation. I pray on a weekly basis that our church would be humble. We don't want to be prideful. We don't want just knowledge to change our thinking and then we go, okay, I know the truth. If there's no love, we have simply been puffed up in our pride. We don't want that. Can I say, though, we don't want the opposite of that? No knowledge, just love, sentimental church. We don't want to be a prideful church. We don't want to just be a sentimental, emotional church. We want knowledge and love together. Truth in love, preached, lived out, By the grace of God. Paul says this best in Philippians chapter 1 verse 9. May God cause your love to abound with knowledge and discernment. I want your love to grow for one another. But it's not just sentimental emotions. I want it to be uh, filled with, with truth, with knowledge, with discernment. I love when I hear people say, Oh, I love how this church stands for the truth. I love that. 
That makes my soul smile. But I also and equally love when I hear, I love how this church loves people. What a blessing it is when new visitors speak to me and they say, and so many people said hello. They were encouraging. They were kind. They were nice. I can see Jesus in the way they love. We need to be that church. We need both truth and love. That's why Paul says, speak the truth in love. Doing that will enable you to grow. We need both. First Corinthians 13, you remember the way it starts? I can speak with the tongue of men and of angels. I can have a message from God himself on my lips, but if I do not have love, it profits nothing. It profits nothing. I remember talking to a friend in seminary. We were talking about that passage, and we were talking about the implications of that passage, and He said to me, you know, Patrick, all you need to do, I I had come to him saying that I I had failed in preaching a sermon because I had preached the truth, but I had done so without love. It was very harsh. It wasn't kind. and I had no grace in it. And he said, that's not, that's not your problem. It's not, you don't need to worry about that. And I'll never forget what he said. He said, all you need to do is get the truth right. If you get the truth right, it doesn't matter how it comes out. I remember going, that is dead wrong. That is dead wrong. You can get the truth right, and if it comes out wrong, the whole thing's been messed up. It profits no one anything. It's meaningless. So yes, we need to get the truth right, but not to the the neglect of getting the love right. We need to love one another. And how can you love one another when you're not with one another? We need to live with one another. So, let me give you three essential components for discipling, disciple-making, this relationship. Number one, content. How do we disciple? Content. The content is the gospel. This is the center of everything that we teach, everything that we proclaim. We're proclaiming the gospel. The center of our discipling relationship is not our quirks, our idiosyncrasies, our hobby horses. That doesn't matter. What matters is the gospel. How are you living your life in light of the gospel? That's the content. That's why Colossians chapter 1, verse 28 says, We proclaim Christ. We don't proclaim our own desires. We don't proclaim our own personalities. We proclaim Jesus. The intent, number two. So we've got the content, that's the gospel. Number two, the intent, the goal, is multiplication. The goal is multiplication. It's not just adding, it's multiplying. Disciple-making is for the purpose of multiplying other mature believers in Jesus Christ who can multiply in other people. Part of the disciple-making process is training disciples who will in turn train other disciples. So the content's the gospel, the goal, the intent is multiplication. And number three, the context for discipleship is relationships. The context is relationships. One pastor says it this way, books and sermons and conferences and articles play a wonderful supplementary part in the discipleship process. But no distant writer, no speaker, no preacher can sit across the table from you and apply Christian truth precisely to your specific life because he knows you in particular and has seen your life lived out. Real life relationships are vital to discipleship. And that's, again, why we as a church want to just take a break over the summer 
just say no to all the programs and say we're meeting on Sundays and we're meeting on Thursdays and the rest of the week is free and open for you to be able to live life on life, for all of us to be able to encourage each other in Christ's likeness. So how do we disciple? The content is the gospel. The goal, the intent is multiplication. The context is relationships. How do we practically do this? Can I encourage you? Have people over. Have people over to your house. Some people say, I don't really like talking to people that I don't know that well. Especially if I feel like maybe they've been coming to the church for a long time and I don't want to have that awkward circumstance where you say, hi, are you new? And they say, no, I've been here for four years. Um, I've done that. Don't, don't worry. You can go, oh, I can't remember names. I'm so sorry. I, I just We're broken and lacking, Remember? Wear that. Do that today. Go up to somebody and say, I am so sorry. I've forgotten your name. I don't know how long you've been coming because I'm broken and I'm lacking. Use the sermon. (laughs) Get to know your friends here in a better way. Ask them questions. Have them over. We had the blessing of having the Regan family over on Tuesday. I think it was Tuesday night this last week. And just having joy playing games with them, just talking like... This is not some formal, we're going to have them over, and now let's study a book of the Bible, and we need to pray, and we need to memorize, and now leave. The Bible just naturally, if it's what you love, these things are going to naturally come out. And you're naturally going to ask, how can I pray for you? How can I pray for you? How can I encourage you? What is it that you're going through in your life this week that's been the biggest struggle? And I want to pray for you right now. We need to be living side by side. That's why we read that book, Side by Side, by Ed Welch. We need to be a church that would graciously live side by side with one another. So how do we do this? Get baptized. Become a member. Get plugged into a small group. Lead a small group. Teach the men's study. Teach the women's study. Have people over and love Jesus in front of them. Let them see your love for Christ as they love you. That is the point of our church. Our church is about relationships. First and foremost, the relationship between us and the God of the universe that Jesus himself made possible for us to be reconciled with the God who had nothing but wrath in store for us because of our sin. Jesus took that wrath upon himself so that we can have nothing but love and pleasure and be delighted in by the Father. And if we've been accepted by him and he is for us and not against us, then we should be for our family. We should be for our church family and not against them. We should be encouraging them, loving them. And if I can just say one more thing. Go to 2 Timothy. We'll end here. 2 Timothy chapter 2. You know this passage. One one final aspect of how we are going to be involved in equipping and discipling. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Paul's talking to Timothy, the pastor of the church in Ephesus. The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. There's our fourfold generations. We have uh, Paul giving to Timothy, Timothy giving to somebody who will give to somebody else. Technically, it's five because Paul was given the truth by Jesus himself. This is... For all of us to a certain extent, but specifically this is to pastors. 
We as a church want to be a church that would train men and equip them in pastoral ministry. We, our goal as a church is ultimately to plant churches. We can't do that if we aren't training men and equipping them and giving them opportunities to preach, to teach, to lead, to succeed, and yes, to fail sometimes. We're going to do that this summer as well. We're going to give men opportunities to preach. We're going to give men opportunities to do things that they don't normally do, but we've been preparing them for and equipping them for, and they have proven character, and and we're excited to see how the Lord would work. We need to do that as a church. I love seminaries. I loved my time in seminary. I would go back to seminary in a heartbeat. I love seminaries. But there's one enormous thing that is lacking in every single seminary. That's hands-on training. The ability to train, be trained in the church. It's like a medical doctor who's only studied under textbooks and then shows up for open-heart surgery. How many people have you operated on so far? None. I read the textbook. I'm good to go. Well, hang on a second. I want to make sure that you've done this before. Seminary is a school degree, but we want hands-on training and experience. You just simply can't learn to swim standing on the deck of a pool. At some point, you have to dive in. And so we as a church want to take ownership, specifically this summer, to nurture, to shepherd, to equip men and give a safe place for future leaders to develop, to grow, to make mistakes, to learn. It takes a church to develop future leaders, not just seminary professors. Instructors at seminary are amazing. Praise the Lord for them. But it doesn't take them to develop future leaders. It takes a church. So what does that have to do with us as a church moving into the summer and beyond? Get to know the people that will be up front. We've got men that will be um, preaching for the first time. We've got men that will be leading the, the worship through song for the first time. We've got people that will be up here that maybe you don't know as so we'll get to know them, have them over, ask about their goals for ministry and how you can encourage them. Pray, pray, pray for their development. Be involved, as we talked about in Family Bible Hour, giving them feedback and encouragement, godly, constructive criticism. We are all broken and lacking And the people that stand before you on a regular basis and the people that will stand before you over the summer on on a semi-regular basis, they're broken and lacking too. We're all broken and lacking. So we need help. We need encouragement. How is something coming across? How could it be said better? Allow these men the opportunity to lead with joy. The church is a living laboratory for leaders to learn to love. We need to make our church that for these men. Be patient with them. Get excited for them. And make CBC a great place and a safe place to grow, to fail, to get up and to keep going. Why don't we as a whole, why don't we as a whole disciple on a regular basis? What do we, what do we see in discipleship that, that makes us think, I don't want to be a part of this? Let's look at the end of 2 Timothy. Verse 3, we know exactly what it is. Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. Also, if anyone competes as an athlete, he doesn't win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. The hardworking farmer ought to be the first to receive his share of the crops. Why don't we disciple on a regular basis? Because it's costly. 
Disciple-making is costly. It's giving, it's giving, it's giving, it's giving time, it's giving energy, it's giving attention, it's taking initiative, it's making sacrifices, it's facing opposition, it's shedding tears. It means sharing your own self, spending your own self, and being spent on a regular basis. Jesus did say, though, it's better to give than to receive. So we have the example of our Savior who gave into the last drop of blood that he had for us so that we could be reconciled to the Father. That's what we celebrate at the Lord's table this morning. The heart of a disciple who loves to make disciples, this is what their heart says, it makes me happier for you to have my time, my energy, my attention, my initiative, than for me to keep it for myself. If we're honest, that's the reason why we don't get involved in disciple making. You say, I've already given all of my time for all these other things, I don't have more time for you. So what makes it worth it? Let me give you three passages and we'll be done. What makes it worth it? First Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 19 through 20. First Thessalonians 2, 19 through 20, Paul says, What is our hope? What is our joy? What is our crown of boasting before the Lord at his coming? Is it not you? You are our glory and our joy. So, Yes, it's costly, but in the end, you will have people that will be more mature because you are faithful to be obedient to disciple-making such that they grew in Christ. And Paul says, they're my joy. They're my crown. They're my glory. If I were to ask you, what are you going to be most excited about at the Lord's coming? When he comes again, I think most people would say, oh, no more pain, no more death, no, no more afflictions. That's all internal. It's all self Centered. Paul says, oh, my greatest joy on that last day, when I see Jesus coming, when he comes from the clouds, my greatest joy are the people that are going with me, that are mature in Christ because God used me. You all know the, the last verse. Third John, verse 4. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. No parents use that verse a lot and praise the Lord for literal physical children and offspring that are walking with the Lord. But John is speaking about his congregation. And he says, oh, disciple making is costly. I mean, you have to be a good soldier. You have to give up. You have to sacrifice. You have to be a hardworking farmer. I don't really enjoy the title of hardworking in front of anything I do. I want it to be nice and easy with a lazy boy afterwards and a glass of iced tea. But John says, to do that work, it's given me no greater joy than to know that you're walking with Christ. You're holding his hand. That's discipleship relationships. I hold the hand of Christ. I hold the hand of somebody else. I bring their hands together. They hold on. I walk away, and I do it with somebody else. So disciple-making is costly. It's designed by God when healthy to be a great joy-producing enterprise. It's not easy. It's very hard but it's deeply rewarding with joys that you will not otherwise taste apart from God's work in and through you in making disciples. Father, we thank you so much for just a a brief change of pace for us as a church to get a a standalone sermon where we get to just focus on the practical, practical aspect of disciple making. Why, why do we need to make disciples? The easy answer is because that's obedience to your word. 
You've given us the task. All authority is given to our king, and King Jesus has commissioned us as believers to make disciples. And the reason why, clearly, in Ephesians 4 is because we're all lacking and we're all broken. God, make us a humble church that would say that, gladly admit, I'm way worse than I even think I am. And I need help. I need encouragement. God, make us humble. Make us relational. How do we do that? How do we encourage one another? We speak the truth in love, and we do that by being with one another. Yes, it happens on a Sunday morning, but so much more so primarily during the middle of the week. So God, I pray that as we have freed up our schedule this summer as a church, we do that with the goal of the glory of God pervasively moving in our church in all of our relationships to intentionally be involved in getting to know people that maybe we don't know that well or getting to dive into deep relationships that we already have, all for the purpose of presenting every man mature and complete in Christ. That's what we want to do. So, Father, I pray that we would do that with all of the energy that Christ provides through the Spirit, all of the grace that he has given because of the cross. And even now, as we prepare our hearts to celebrate communion, we are celebrating a death and a resurrection that makes discipleship possible, that makes unity possible. We were unified and reconciled to the Father because of the cross. And so we can be unified and reconciled to one another because of the cross. So God, give our church a vision for making disciples to practically and intentionally pursue people at great cost to ourselves. That will be so worth it on the last day. What else could we be involved in? Truly only lesser things. So may we have done with lesser things this morning and pursue the greatest thing, the glory of God in these relationships.